You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello, it's Manveen here. Back in November, we did a five-part series about Shamima Begum, a schoolgirl from Bethnal Green who went to join the Caliphate. And now, there's been an update. The Supreme Court has ruled that Shamima Begum, who left London and travelled to Syria when she was 15 to join the Islamic State group, should not be allowed to return to the UK to challenge the removal of her British citizenship. In a judgment handed down this morning, it said the safety of the public trumps her right to a fair hearing. Human rights campaigners say the ruling is a cynical ploy to make Miss Begum someone else's responsibility. Her children are dead, sadly, but there's a plenty of other children in, the, in those camps. It is an international mess, really, isn't it? This is an extra episode to bring you the latest on a monumental judgment from the Supreme Court and what it means for Shamima Begum and others like her and for justice and security in Britain. The Court of Appeal initially ruled she should be allowed to return to fight her appeal, but President of the Supreme Court, Lord Reid, said this was a flawed judgment. It did not give the Home Secretary's assessment the respect which it should have received, given that it is the Home Secretary who has been charged by Parliament with responsibility for making such assessments and who is democratically accountable to Parliament for the discharge of that responsibility. Anthony Lloyd, foreign correspondent for The Times, was the first journalist to find Shamima Begum. Two years ago, he found her heavily pregnant, detained in a Kurdish camp. Anthony's interview with Shamima created a storm, unleashing a whirlwind of headlines, political interventions, and quite often, public vitriol. She was a stupid woman. She made bad decisions as a 15-year-old. She was probably used as a source of sex for ISIS fighters. When the news from the Supreme Court broke, we gave Anthony Lloyd a call. I mean, I was gutted this morning when I heard the case. I had expected she'd win. Yeah. I mean, of course, I had kept something back just in case, like, she might not win, but I'd expected she would win. 
How did you hear about the news this morning? I heard it on the radio this morning at 10 o'clock when the Supreme Court ruling was announced. What did you make of the decision? Talk me through the judgment. Previously, an appeals court had said that Shamima Begum should have the right to return to the UK in order to have her case heard against the revocation of her citizenship earlier by the former Home Secretary Sajid Javid. So, this ruling today effectively said that she couldn't come back to the UK in order to have her case heard here. That makes it almost impossible to have her case heard at all because she cannot have a fair hearing, obviously, in an internment camp in Syria. Ultimately, it gave a rather chilling message. It said, in the balance between justice and security, the dictates of security definitively came first, even if it meant that Shamima Begum could not have the fair hearing to which she was entitled. Did they explain what sort of a timescale this puts on her appeal? Basically, it threw it back to her, essentially saying she'd foregone the right to come back here, that she was considered either personally her return to the UK uh, would be a national security threat, or the implied thing was that it might be a precedent case that could threaten security if others came back too. But essentially, it said that she was not in a position to have her hearing in the UK as a threat to national security, and that she, though the grounds for the hearing were good, she was going to have to get into herself into a situation or position where it could be held elsewhere. That's an extrapolation of what was said, but that was the, the meaning behind it. I'm not sure if this is an issue which could be held in appeals court elsewhere. What it does do is throw the whole process back down the road for a, a long time. It's not an ultimate solution. It's not the end of the fight, because what the Supreme Court did recognise is that she does have a right to a hearing appealing against her revocation of her citizenship, but that she can't have it here. There are external factors which will come to play as well. And, you know, across Europe, there have been different decisions made by different courts over whether or not people can return to those countries. And I think it's very important to remember as well that previously, President Trump had consistently said that the UK and Europe must repatriate its citizens from camps in Syria, do its own housework, so to speak, and that by not doing so, that was a growing security threat amongst these camps. Now, Trump's message was kind of lost in the general confusion of the Trump era and many, many conflicting messages. Also, the Trump administration lost traction in northeastern Syria as of October 2019, when they appeared to give tacit approval to a Turkish invasion or attack into northern Syria. We've got the Biden administration here now. You've got Europe very ready to listen to the Biden administration. Now, when they turn their attention to these camps, they're very unlikely to have a different message than the Trump administration. These are camps whose security the Americans overwhelmingly over and above anyone else pays for. These are camps that all American citizens have been removed from now and repatriated back to the US. America doesn't understand this kind of kicking the can down the road approach of European and the British governments to dealing with the, the situation, it's trying to push the problem away, bat it away for the midterm future. Americans don't get that. They think it's dangerous. Uh, and overall, they think it contributes to the strength of Islamic State rather than undermining it. So let's see what Biden says about this. There may be a lot of pressure brought on the UK and the Europeans to get people back. That could change Shamima Begum's situation a bit. 
But aside from that, it's very difficult to see how things can move forward in the short term for her case. Would it have to be political pressure from America to make the Home Secretary now change her mind? It's very difficult to see the Home Secretary changing her mind anytime soon on this. But I mean, you're right. The judgment absolutely said that on the balance between the needs of fair justice, fair hearing and security, you do not have a right to fair hearing if the interests of national security are at stake. It, it said that unequivocally. So basically, it, it handed it over to the Home Office. Shamima is one of many people who are still out in the camps. What effect does this have on all of them? It's a completely chilling message to anyone who's a British citizen or former British citizen. Now, remember, the 35 children in the camps are British citizens. I mean, they are technically British passport holders. No one can strip their citizenship. The parents were talking about 15 women who are either still British citizens or, or former British citizens. The message to one and all is, is absolutely chilling. The political will here is not one that will allow you to return. The Supreme Court has backed that political will. And for you, having covered this story from the very start. What are your reflections today? Those camps are described as the Guantanamo of Europe by aid organisations and human rights groups. Their very existence undermines security. Anybody here who thinks our security is best served by keeping thousands of those people kettled in camps over there, something which not only cannot be guaranteed in the long-term future, but is very, very unlikely to last the existence of those camps in the long-term future, is kidding themselves. Holding people in those camps does not work. It doesn't produce better security. It certainly doesn't produce any justice. Shamima Begum is just but one very well-known figure of a far greater problem. But if you're asking me how did I feel about it, I was acutely disappointed with the judgment. To make sense of the judgment, we're taking you back to the start of the story. We're going to play you the very first episode we made with Anthony back in November last year. In it, he explains how he first found Shamima Begum and how his interview led to a national debate and eventually to this court case. To listen to the rest of the series, five episodes in all, search for Bring Me Home on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you'll find links in the description of this episode. See you next week. My name is Shamima Begum. And where are you from, Shamima? I'm from the UK. You're one of the Bethnal Green girls, right? Yes, I'm one of the Bethnal Green girls. It was a chance meeting in a Syrian camp. A veteran war reporter and a heavily pregnant young woman. It was the interview that polarised a nation. Mr Speaker, the House will have also seen the comments of Shamima Begum. Quite simply, if you back terror, there must be consequences. Shamima Begum was just 15 years old when she and two of her school friends from Bethnal Green left Britain to join Islamic State. Five years later, with her fate still hanging in the balance, the Supreme Court will this week decide whether the government was right to strip her of her citizenship. Whatever else had happened, this doesn't exculpate her, but here was a young pregnant woman wanting help, and a young British woman, now I had two, that within a very short space of time, she had her British citizenship removed, her baby was dead, she was a national hate figure. And you know, I had to take my responsibility in that. 
In a week-long series, we look at what should happen to the British nationals who went to join Islamic State. Do we have a responsibility to bring them back? Can they be de-radicalised if they return? Or should we leave them where they are? I say this to the people that are so keen on having these people back into the UK. Let them live next door to you. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, bring me home. Shamima Begum's story. So this was February the 13th last year, 2019. I'd been in Syria for a couple of weeks already. That's Anthony Lloyd. You know, I've been working repeatedly in Syria since 2012. Anthony is foreign correspondent for The Times and in war reporting circles, a bit of a legend. You know, from years of being involved in security issues, being involved in wars, knowing hostages, being a hostage. Kidnapped and shot in Syria, attacked by drones in Libya, Antony is usually to be found on the front line in war zones as diverse as Bosnia, Afghanistan, Sierra Leone and Iraq. He's been tracking the rise and fall of Islamic State since the caliphate first set up home in Syria in 2013. But what was important about this time last year, this February, was that a battle was ongoing over the last territorial slither of the caliphate. It was around a small town called Baguz, which is in the mid-Euphrates Valley. And I was aware that during the course of that battle, some of the last mysteries of the caliphate would probably be revealed. What happened, for example, to the Bethnal Green Girls? The Bethnal Green Girls. In the brief history of Islamic State, it was a chapter that transfixed Britain. Fears are growing for three British schoolgirls who have travelled to Istanbul and are believed to be making their way to Syria. Captured on CCTV at London's Gatwick Airport on Tuesday, Hadija Sultana, 16, Shamima Begum, 15, and their unnamed 15-year-old friend left without telling their families. Back at the start of 2015, ISIS were expanding fast, making territorial gains and taking over swathes of land in the Middle East. In Britain, their rise was alarming, but it was distant until three ordinary schoolgirls from a school like any other in the heart of London's East End suddenly vanished. Islamic State was suddenly here, asserting itself in the familiar surroundings of a London borough. The school is rated outstanding by Ofsted, but it's reeling from the revelation that this half-term, three bright teenage girls, due to take their GCSEs this summer, have run away to Turkey and seem to be heading for Syria. Three bright schoolgirls, recruited by the lure of Islamic State. They became known as the Jihadi Brides, but all three were just children at the time. I'll tell you why that story immediately rose to prominence. First of all, it was the girls' youth, and also their background. I mean, these were intelligent girls, going to school together, Bethnal Green. Their families had no idea of what what was going to happen. And so with their sudden disappearance, these became symbolic of the thrall that Islamic State had on so many of the Muslim youth in Europe 
And it was frightening as well because it was, you know, every parent's nightmare that suddenly their teen child had a secret life that a parent doesn't know about, which happens in for every teenager to some extent. But in this case, that secret life was, you know, growing an online relationship with Islamic State to the point they actually fled the country and went off to Syria to live in the caliphate. So it was symbolic on many, many levels. But also, here is the other thing as well. The Metropolitan Police, as soon as the girls had fled, reasoning that if they went public, there was a chance they could somehow stop the girls from actually getting as far as Syria, chose to publicise the case and speak out. That wasn't the case for all other families in a similar situation, but it certainly was. It was the police who advised the families to go public that the girls had gone. And that gave a massive public profile to this case. The media was suddenly filled with images of three smiling girls in school uniform. Their parents couldn't believe the girls would travel across London alone. And suddenly, here was grainy CCTV footage showing them fleeing to Turkey. Gawick Airport on their way to Istanbul. And quite an image in itself. The three girls, you know, very much still in Western clothes at that stage, looking, you know, determined, uh, adventurous and and slightly carefree uh, at that moment. Then, in 2019, as the Islamic State crumbled, from its wreckage rose the possibility of some answers. So, as I was covering the Battle of Baguz, it suddenly seemed very obvious that, well, look, what happened to the Bethel Green Girls? The place to look appeared to be the Al Hall refugee camp in Syria, which was controlled by the Kurdish forces who were defeating ISIS in battle. And it was on the final day of my assignment that the Kurds said to me, yeah, you can visit Al Hall camp. I didn't have any special information to suggest that Shamima Begum was there, nor was I sure she was even still alive. But it seemed a logical place to go. At that stage, it had 40,000 people in it. It was teeming, and the camp authorities didn't then have any accurate records of who exactly was in the camp, nor do they now, a year and a half later. Anthony asked the people in charge of the Al Hall camp for help in tracking down the Bethnal Green girls. They had no idea who these people were. They didn't have a computer system to check names, nor if they had, would those names have appeared there. Not one to give up easily, Anthony set up camp in the camp director's office. I hadn't got anywhere else to be, admittedly. And he liked <laughs> London, this guy, so he sat around and he said, no, I haven't got any Brits here, I can you know, introduce you to Chinese or French or, or whatever, we haven't got any Brits here. And finally, after about two hours, he said, OK, I'll, I'll go and look for you. And in that teeming mass of 40,000 people was a girl from Bethnal Green. He came back with two women about 15, 20 minutes later. Of course, I didn't see who they were because they were in the cab and they sat down in front of me and one introduced herself as a Canadian. She had two young kids with her. And when I turned to speak to the other and asked her, well, who are you? And she said, you know, I'm a sister from London. You're one of the Bethnal Green girls, right? Yes, I'm one of the Bethnal Green girls. And that was Shamima Begum, nine months pregnant, four years after she went missing. I recognised it as an important story. I didn't recognise it as a 
story that would catalyse the nation in the way it did. This is the front of the mail today. Jihadi bride coming back. These girls and other people went to fight. First of all, put their own families through hell often. They didn't tell them. She deserves a harsh punishment, but the responsibility is ours and we mm. cannot offload that on another country. I'm sorry, she is not my responsibility. She had her own responsibility. She chose to take herself out there. This woman is a, an unrepentant supporter of terrorist barbarity and she turned her back on everything that we believe in in this country. She was a child when she was groomed. She didn't go over to fight. She's made herself into an enemy of this country. I know she was only 15 when she went there, but she threw herself into it enthusiastically. There was an outcry in Britain. Everybody seemed to have an opinion. There were furious debates in Parliament, in the courts, in the television studios, and pubs and living rooms across the country. But it was all a world away from the Al Hall camp, where Anthony sat down with Shamima Begum. It's a dusty brown yard, there's wire up around it, there's the administration offices in the kind of corner of it. And then beyond that, you've got the huge sprawl of our whole camp. She was a mixture of things. Some ways she was quite arrogant, some ways she was quite bolshy. She was quite smart. She was also quite naive because she'd been living within the confines of the Caliphate for those years. She didn't really have any worldly knowledge that struck me very much at all. And Nothing was contrived. What was going on in her head came out of her mouth. And that's what made that interview very special. She was fresh from the Caliphate. She wanted to speak to me. She wanted to save the life of her child. Shamima Begum had arrived in the camp fresh from the Battle of Baguz, a major turning point in the history of Islamic State. It was the final battle that ISIS lost, effectively wiping the Caliphate off the map in 2019. She was fresh out of a battle zone. There are a couple of things which are immediately apparent. One, overarchingly, she wanted to save the life of her unborn baby. I actually think about my baby as well. After my two kids died, I just, now I'm really overprotective of this baby. I'm scared that this baby's going to get sick in this camp. That's why I really want to get back to Britain, because I know it will be taken care of. Like health-wise, at least. Number two, she was radicalised. You can say whatever you like about what's happened since. Then she was radicalised, and you could see that from a number of comments she made. Like this one, for example. Did you ever see executions? No, no, no. Uh, no, but I saw the headed head in the bins. In the bins? Yeah. It's really what was that like when you first saw that? These are the heads of captives? Yeah. I didn't pay me at all. It's not a crime to see a severed head. I've seen severed heads. What's interesting is how she described it. She said, I wasn't fazed. You see it and you think, oh, what has this man done to, like, Muslim women and Muslim children? And, like, who are they fighting for? And what are they fighting for, you know? They're fighting against us. They want to kill us. It was total binary thought. There was no mid-ground. If it hadn't been him, it would have been me who was killed. And that's a very typical thought process of radicalisation. Telling, too, was her comments about journalists. I said, well, hang on, you joined the Caliphate after murder of journalists, uh, among whom were some of my friends, incidentally. To which she responded oddly. No, because these were, were these not journalists? These were not yeah. Spying. Well, I think they were just caught being journalists. 
I mean, in a way, they're kind of like a security threat. Oh. Like, why do journalists sneak into Syria for? Well, to report on the situation. I'm here as a journalist speaking to you now. People became catalyzed by those remarks back here. But those remarks are absolutely typical of, one, somebody who's in a degree of shock having just come out of a battle, but two, somebody who's been kettled within the confines of the Islamic State for those years at a very informative period of their time. They were not remarkable to me. I remember thinking at the time, oh, yeah, you're still down the river, aren't you? And she was saying stuff like this. It wasn't, I wasn't hugely shocked by it. I, I've heard a lot of remarks like that before. Within a few weeks of arriving in Syria, at the age of 15, Shamima had married a Dutch Islamic State fighter. I got married pretty quickly. I was the first one to get married. Had your husband been out in Syria for a long time before you arrived? He had been there for only maybe five months. Despite her radicalisation, she was becoming disaffected with elements of the caliphate. I hear so many stories about people, like, the, the way Dola has treated them. And me personally, I've seen the way, like, the military police have treated my husband, the way they tortured him for six, six and a half months that he was in prison, and then only to kick him out and then not even give him compensation. For, like, she was a mix. She was a paradoxical figure. And there's so much oppression, going, oppression and corruption going on that I don't really think they deserve victory. I saw her as a young, vulnerable female in a really complex position who had come to me for help. I saw that then, and I've seen that ever since. That doesn't detract from the hugely complicated situation that she and others are in, vis-a-vis how we judge whether or not they should be brought back to Britain and how that position sits in our own judicial process and our own security I saw her as a very young, heavily pregnant woman who had lost two other kids and had come to me ostensibly for help. Shamima was asking to be brought home to protect her then unborn baby. Now I'm, like, I'm over 18, so they might, I might get charged with something. And what about the children, the women? What happened to them? What do you think might happen to my child? What do you think, or do you know what will happen? I don't know. I said, I don't know the answer to that, but I mean, you should be investigated. But I also didn't imagine that she wouldn't be brought home. I thought she would be brought home quickly. And did you have any sense at that moment of just how cataclysmic this would be back in Britain when, when the story came out? None. And... Oddly, that day was it for me. I'd been in Syria for two weeks. I had no money, literally no money. I had about $20, $30 in my wallet. And I was due to get out to Iraq. So that's what I, I did. And I left having no knowledge of how this story was being picked up in the UK. I was driving across the desert for about 12 hours. Being picked up is something of an understatement. We cannot ignore the threat posed by those who chose to leave Britain to engage with the conflict in Syria or Iraq. That's the voice of Sajid Javid, Home Secretary at the time, who swiftly revoked Shamima Begum's British citizenship. Mr Speaker, the House will have also seen the comments of Shamima Begum and that she's made in the media, and it will have to draw its own conclusions. Quite simply, if you back terror, there must be consequences. She then gave birth, days later, to Jarrah, her third child, 
who died very, very quickly after that of a respiratory illness. Within about a week of that, one of those five frames that I'd taken, which had become a front page of newspapers around the world, was being used as a, as a target front for a gun club in the Wirral, where people could pay to you know, pump a full of lead. Oh, wow. You know, people think that this story was some sort of stellar moment in my journalistic career. Quite the opposite. This was the most toxic story I've ever come involved with. I was getting called in the streets an enemy, my country, uh, a terrorist voice. You know, there's all sorts of threats coming in. I've been a journalist for 27 years, and I believe professional journalists should inform their society in a factual and accurate way, thereby generating debate in that society on the basis of you know, informed debate, which then drives policy. It's an essential part of democracy. Great. That sounds fantastic. But here, in this case, I didn't see the debate. I just saw an enraged and often brutish reaction. It's not a story where I think, oh, God, yeah, great, the time I found Shamima Begum. I think about that every day and certainly not thinking, wow, what a great story. What was it like watching the, the political reaction for you? I didn't know what was worse, the social reaction or the political reaction. It was by the time it got to the day that a friend rang me up and said, hey, you know, that picture you've taken of is now a target in a Wirral gun club getting pumped full of lead. I just remember standing there and just holding my head in my hands, just thinking, can this get any worse? In terms of a belief system, the belief of the benefit of the journalist in society, I absolutely believe in my role, as I've described, to inform society, not through some public press release, but by going out somewhere to find someone, often in war, and to report not to the whim of editorial slant or, or political desire or anything, but as accurately as I see fit based on my own experience on a situation. I, I'm with that in order to inform my society, in order to generate debate. Sachi Javid may have removed her citizenship because he is aware of something in a secret file that she has done. But he doesn't have to remove it for those reasons. He can only has to have in his own mind that it is beneficial to the public good in order to remove her citizenship. You can define that any way you wish. So you can't judge that removal of her citizenship was for some super secret thing about her that we don't know, because it could as equally be for no other reason than the public reaction to my interview with her. As the fallout rippled across Britain, Anthony Lloyd returned to Syria a month later. By then, Shamima Begum was a grieving mother again. She was in a much more reflective mood. Since I left Barvos, I really regretted everything I did and... I feel like, in a way, I want to go back to the UK for, like, a second chance to start my life over again. When I first came out of Dola, I was still in the brainwash mentality. Like, I still supported... In the intervening weeks, Shamima Begum had been moved to another Syrian refugee camp, Al Roj. It was a different camp, much calmer. Just beyond the perimeter fence of the camp, her three-week-old baby, a British baby, was buried in an unmarked grave. By this stage, Shamima had already lost two other children, 
three in total. She talks then about how online grooming had begun for her. Online, they were they would tell me, oh, you know, your family, they don't pray, they don't do this, they don't listen to you. They won't listen to you if you tell them to pray and start, like, practising properly. You know, they're going to take you to hellfire if you stay with them. Did you get the feeling that she'd been profoundly changed by what had happened, by the reaction to the interview and the citizenship and the baby being lost? Or was it that in the meantime she'd sort of spoken to lots of lawyers who had told her to change her the way the way she spoke to, to journalists? That's a good question. I don't think she's spoken to lots of lawyers because her com- ability to communicate with the outside world was very, very limited at that stage. She didn't have a phone of her own. She had access once a week to texts for a very short amount of time on a camp administration phone. I mean, let's not forget, she had been shown the Home Secretary's decision to revoke her citizenship by a journalist. What do you think? I don't know what to say. I'm not that shocked, but I'm a bit shocked. So the Home Secretary's deprived you of your British citizenship? Yeah. She had been told about how much people hated her by journalists. She had given birth, and before she could even sit up, a journalist crew had been allowed in the delivery room, in the sort of dump delivery section in our hole, to film that. Oh, God. There was a lot of force involved and a lot of manipulation. I mean, the second interview I ever did, it was straight after I gave birth. Like, I was still in the delivery room, and they were knocking on the door. So that was kind of... Yeah. I couldn't even see her properly, and they were just shining a camera in my face. You know, my son was not that easy. This is not a woman who's either had a great experience with journalists, may I add, or is under any illusions how much she is now despised in the UK. And it's not because she can, you know, ring up lawyers and talk about it. So I didn't think that this was a contrived act the second time around when I saw her. And how could it be? You just lost your baby, your third baby, by that stage in five months? I think every single woman in here needs psychological help, even some of the children. We try to act normal, but every now and then we slip up and kind of break down. Or... Have you had the chance to break down? Not really. It's really hard, but I just have to accept it and move on, really. I know it sounds like kind of like I don't care, but I really do care. It's just they're in a better place now, I guess. I speak to other people about her. I speak to, you know, the camp authorities, you know, when she's not there and say, how is she doing? What kind of woman is she? And what and they do they say? say? You know, I say, by God, I wish they were all like Shamima Begum. She's, you know, open-minded and articulate. She's not a radical like many of the women we get here. She's a, easy to deal with. For a start, she wants to come home. There's a notion here that everybody wants to come home from those camps. No, they don't. You get some of the extremists who say we're still in the land of the caliphate. Our whole camp, for example, is now a front line for the caliphate. We will stay here with our children right to the end until Islamic State regroup and rise again. You know, the fact that a woman wants to say, I want to leave this, I want to go home. As Shamima Begum has said to me, I will go through whatever is required of me by the authorities just to come home.
We'll have more from Anthony in just a moment. But if you want more remarkable journalism that gets to the heart of the story every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times. Join today and get one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There are many other people in the ring here in this chain of action and consequence, starting with Shamima Begum and her decision to go and live in the caliphate run by an organization that is a huge criminal enterprise, a terrorist organization that is responsible for genocide, the deaths of thousands and thousands of people in Syria and Iraq, not quite as many as the Assad regime, I may add, but thousands and thousands of people, and who, unlike the Assad regime, has proven direct threat to Western countries and many others. Let's not forget, you know, Kabul and Baghdad have had many, many, many thousands more killed in terror attacks that are Islamic State originated than people in Paris or London have done. Shamima Begum has become the best known name of anyone in Britain who went to live within the caliphate. And much more importantly, she's become therefore symbolic in the debate over what our national policy should be, and indeed policy within Europe, as to what we do with the 10,000 foreign women and children, probably 12,000, including males too, who are in prisons or in detention camps in Syria. What was it like for you on the other end as as the interviewer, because you've reported on the region for a while, you've you've been kidnapped out there, you've seen colleagues kidnapped and murdered. What was it like for you hearing somebody who, who was very much of the caliphate talking so openly about their views? Uh, I can um, compartmentalise myself quite easily in most interviews. For example, about a year before meeting Shamima Begum, I had interviewed two of the alleged Beatles, Shafi El-Sheikh and Alexander Kote, in a prison in Kobani. 
These two men, now in U.S. custody in Iraq, were part of the ISIS terror cell. Alexander Koti and El Shafi El Sheikh are accused of torturing and killing 27 hostages. Nicknamed the Beatles for their British accents. These were people who were accounted to be believed and the accounts are quite detailed and there's many of them took an active participation in, in, in the torture of Western hostages, including a couple of my friends, who were then murdered by a colleague of theirs, Mohammed Mwazi. Awful, tragic news from overseas late today. It's about an American journalist named James Foley who went missing in Syria two years ago now. He hasn't been seen or heard from since. Well, sadly, today we learned he was apparently beheaded by ISIS militants. That was a challenging interview because James Foley was someone who was known closely to me and I knew these men had, had done James great harm. But I found I could do that as well. I mean, if you've got to have a problem with it, you shouldn't be in on the interview. You've got to compartmentalize your emotions slightly from this kind of situation. If you can't do that, then don't do it. People were surprised that you seemed to, to want her to come home. Given your, your experience of the region, was that difficult as a decision? No, no, not at all. I found it absolutely instinctive. And it's not, there was a sense of, of I suppose, merciful sense to it. But I don't see, I mean, you know, I've been covering wars for well, now, is it 26, 27 years? Before that, I was in the British Army. I was a British Army officer in, in the infantry. I don't see mercy as something necessarily connected in war only to moral rectitude or righteousness. Mercy has a logic to it as well and a power. It is, it's a means by which you can end a conflict. Now, I'm not saying everybody in each case can be applied mercy or clemency on a similar and equal way. But here was a very young woman who had made a series of cataclysmic decisions at the age of 15 as a schoolgirl, decisions for which she had suffered egregiously for. Now, that didn't make her a good person or necessarily a likable person, but it did, to my mind, make her somebody who, well, look, you come back to the UK, you are investigated for what you've done, and if necessary, you will be punished for what you have done. But with the hope that, given your youth, you should be able to rejoin our society again. That was how I felt about it. By and large, people saw Shamima Begum and the other two Bethnal Green girls as victims, probably of grooming. It was rather frightening as well. Here are three intelligent young teenage girls who left and went off to join Islamic State. It was kind of indicative of the thrall Islamic State. Uh, had and so many of the youth throughout Europe. That emotional climate has changed dramatically by February last year. In the interim period, we've had a series of you know, seismic, horrific terrorist attacks throughout Europe. In France, they are mourning the worst peacetime attacks since World War II. More than 120 people killed and over 350 injured in just a few hours of carnage. 
a night of celebration forgotten in an instant. Breaking news out of Greater Manchester, a serious incident at Manchester Arena. Seven people killed and 48 injured, 21 of them in critical condition. A third major attack in three months. Good evening. Two people have died in what the Metropolitan Police are describing as a terrorist incident on London Bridge. The attacker was later shot dead. Also, we've seen the terrible battles, you know, in Mosul, in Raqqa. We've had thousands and thousands of Iraqis and Syrians coming out to speak to journalists out of the rubble of their lives, describing the, you know, excoriating suffering they've suffered at the hands of Islamic State. Public opinion has turned dramatically against anybody who knowingly went to be part of that organization or live within the, you know, expanse of that criminal enterprise. So, I can't say to people in Manchester and London, oh, yeah, your natural loathing of Islamic State is in some ways wrong. It's not wrong. It's entirely legitimate. Mm. And you don't even have to personally suffer in a terrorist attack to despise a terrorist after all. An assault on a strong moral code is easily enough to provoke that those kind of feelings. But rage doesn't get one very far. It still leaves unanswered the bigger question. What do we do with them? What do we do with British nationals who went over there? And they had many reasons for going over there. Some went over there to fight and kill unbelievers. Some went over there to fight against Assad, but then got themselves roped up in Islamic State for reasons that were out of their control. Then you've got women who went over there, not so much to be jihadi wives, so-called, but to live their lives within the, the caliphate. Then you've got women over there who did want to become jihadi wives. Then you've got women who were groomed and duped over there. Then you've got children. You've got children who were born over there, British kids who had no choice in being there at all. And you had British kids who were taken very young from England to go and live in there who also had no choice at all. So you've got many different levels of who's ended up there. And if we cannot deal with a young woman who made the decision she did, however, cataclysmically bad they were, aged 15, who has no social profile when it comes to trying to recruit others at all. And it seems possibly very little evidence that actually she was involved in terrorist acts or even necessarily the membership of a prescribed terrorist organization when she was out there. You know, if we can't deal with that, then one, you know, our values are not as they should be. We should be able to absolutely prove the superiority of our judicial system and our values here. I mean, it, it looks pretty bad at the moment. Those camps look like kind of U Europe's Guantanamo, right? I mean, it's, it's fair to say that a British child living in Al Hol or Al Roj has less legal rights than a detainee in Guantanamo. The one thing we can all agree on from all sides in this argument is the need to strike a balance between justice and security in a way that is both fair but also safeguards us here. I would argue very strongly for reasons I've described that the way to do that is to actually bring people back rather than leave them there where they escape, kids get radicalized, you know, the whole thing's out of control and you'll end up with people, some of them coming back years down the line, considerably more radicalized than they are now. It's about a situation either being controlled or out of control.
The backlash to Anthony's reports wasn't just directed at Shamima Begum. He was under fire from all sides. I mean, I've had messages saying, you've walked on the backs of her dead children, like a lot. So the right wing are all like, you, you know, disgracefully tried to represent a terrorist and blah, blah, blah. And then I've had all the journo lot saying, great, this was really in the public interest and it's, you know, journalism and it's apogee and all the rest of it. And I'm kind of like, well, <laughs> whatever, it's journalism, that's for sure. But I mean, it's, it's complicated. I was going to say, which of those labels are you most uncomfortable with? <laughs> all of them. <laughs> all of them. I mean, do you sort of feel a, a responsibility for her in a way? I have to recognise my own responsibility. It's... So what, usually as a journalist, you're reporting on things that have happened. People read your reports, well, they don't read your reports, hopefully they read your reports, and they think, huh, and, hum, and they go on the rest of their life and the rest of their day, and maybe they'll think something about that particular story. This is one of those very rare times that the story itself generated a massive reaction, a political reaction and a social reaction. And so... Yeah, I think about, you know, I think about it a lot because it gives me, has left me with a sense of responsibility. My own views have been unchanged in her case from the moment I met her to now. Do I feel a sense of responsibility? Yes. But more to the point, I feel pretty clear eyed on how do you best represent our security interests here? How do you best represent our justice issues here? Well, not by leaving a whole lot of people extreme and less extreme and no longer extreme or kettled up together in one of the least secure places in the world. It just doesn't work. You'll end up with a bigger problem than you've got in the first place. Tomorrow, in part two of Bring Me Home, we look at what life is like in the camps and what should happen to the foreign nationals who are being held there. There are people, aren't there, who say, oh, well, it's obvious, we, we just have to bring them all back here and put them on trial and put them in prison. That's not possible, unfortunately. Like Guantanamo Bay, those that are being held in detention in northeast Syria have no legal rights so they are in a legal black hole. They have been charged with no offence. They are subject to no criminal trials and they have no way of challenging their detention. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, foreign correspondent for The Times, Anthony Lloyd. You can read more of Anthony's work by subscribing to The Times at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. And you'll hear more from him across the week as part of our Bring Me Home series. The producer today was Leona Hamid. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. And sound design was by Carla Patella. If you can, please do leave us a review. And if you'd like to contact us with any thoughts for future episodes or reflections on what you've just heard, you can send us an email by writing to stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow.